Friends, as we remember that God looks at us and behold, we are beautiful, we are created in God's image, we are known and loved. We turn our Bibles to Colossians chapter 2 to study God's word together so that we can learn once again to see ourselves the way that God sees us, so that we can see our neighbor the way God sees us. And so I invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. This summer, we're just working our way through um, the letter to the church in Colossae. And um, one thing just to note as we come to today's reading is throughout the New Testament, um, there is this uh, thread in which Christ is central. Um, Christ is at at the middle, is at the center of what we believe. And and that is true through the book of Colossians. That's true through chapter 2. But verses 6 through 15 especially highlight that that Christ is first and primary. So central throughout the New Testament, but also there's a few details in this text that remind us that that Jesus is is first, that Jesus is the the primary place to which we look. And so I invite you to keep this in mind, to pay attention to, um, I guess as Abbott and Costello would say, who's on first, But as we do so, as we study God's word together, let's pray for God's blessing upon the word. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the Alpha and the Omega. You are the first and the last. You are the firstborn of all creation, and you are also um, the final, the fullness, the completion of all that we could hope and aspire to be. And within your word, From the first page to the last page, we look to learn more about who you are, to shape ourselves to be more like you. From the alpha to the omega, from the first day of our existence to that last day when you call us home, we look to you as central, as first, as primary in our life and in our faith. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 6. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces or basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, 
nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's a couple phrases that I want to share, and and I'll share the first half, and I want to see if you can respond with the second half. If you're not winning, you're losing. If you're not first, you're last. If you're not first, you're last. If you're not winning, you're losing. We hear these words at all kinds of different competitions, um, whether it be music or sports or robotics or whatever the case might be. We, We hear this anytime there's a competition. It's meant to be a motivator, to to push for the first, to push to win. We use these in competitions, talking about first and last, winning and losing. I wonder if they have any bearing on our faith or what this text in Colossians chapter 2 shares with us. I wonder if we reorient the phrase a little bit. Instead of, if you're not first, you're last... What if we ordered it to say, if, if Christ is not first, your life will be out of order? Meaning we think about whatever is first matters the most and everything after that doesn't really matter. And I know full well who I am and that I am a millennial who grew up in the age of participation trophies. And nonetheless, my main response to that is, who is handing out participation trophies? Millennials didn't give them to themselves. But we, 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 even in the days of participation trophies, we still know the phrase, if you're not first, you're last, as if to say there's first place and then everything else after that is like a big tie for, well, nothing. You think about who gets second place at a major event, whether it be uh, the, the women's soccer finals that are in progress or maybe they already happened. Um, but we don't think about getting second place. We say they lost. What is first does matter a lot. However, I would argue that it is also a matter of priority because what's second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth actually still does matter. But what matters most is that the right thing is in first place. And to think in terms of faith, Christ needs to be first and primary. If Christ is not first and primary in our life, in our faith, in our priorities, then all of the other stuff competing for some time in our lives, all of the stuff competing for energy in our lives is going to be mixed up and disordered. It won't really matter how you arrange second, third, fourth, and fifth if you don't get the first thing right. This is some of the rhetoric that's contained in especially chapter 2, 6 through 15 of the book of Colossians. What gets first place matters a lot. Now, I would argue... All of our other priorities do matter too. Your relationships with family and friends, your, your career, your recreational hobbies, all of these matter and can have joy in life as long as they find their proper place. And if Christ isn't first, then everything else will be jumbled up. This is one of the things that's being addressed to the Colossian church is to make sure that, that what you're rooted in, where you put first and primary, is Jesus. Consider how um, I'm going to introduce uh, in a little bit some, some made-up words, but I think they'll be helpful for today as we study this chapter. 
Um, a, a simpler word is uh, if, if you need something to drink, you thirst. And we might say, I thirst. Although that's not usually how we say it. We say, if I thirst, um, is a little bit more of an old English way to say it. We would say, I'm thirsty. Now, perhaps you're with someone who just always has to one-up you, and so they might say, you're thirsty? I'm thirstier. To which you could say, well, I am thirstiest, and thus win that short escalating battle of words. Now, instead of thirst, although as we come to communion later in the service, we should keep in mind our thirst, I want us to instead play the same game with the word first. When Epaphras brought the gospel to the city of Colossae, to the Colossian church, for it was not Paul who planted this church, it was Epaphras who came from Ephesus to plant the church for the Colossians. When Epaphras brought the gospel to the Colossians, he told them that Christ was first. Christ was primary, that all of their life and faith and their belief, the orienting of their lives, needed to put Christ as first for all of the good reasons and benefits that are named here, that the legal indebtedness that stood against us has been freed from us in Christ. Christ is first. But there'll be a lot of people who have something to lose with that. If you had a local temple or if you sold idols, if you did any of those things, you would argue very, very strongly that, that, okay, Christ can have Christ's place, but Christ is not first. Um, In fact, well, if you say Christ is first or firsty, people would argue that, that their thing is firstier. So not thirstier, but firstier. And then Paul, knowing what's going on between Epaphras and other people in the Colossian church, would say, okay, Epaphras told you that Christ is first. Some people are saying that they're firstier. I want to reaffirm that Christ is firstiest. Okay, so just say that word with me so we get used to it firstiest. Okay, one more time. Firstiest. Christ is first and firstiest. Okay? If you're taking notes on this, um, students, do not bring this to school. They will think that you just have a church with very poor grammar. But, but the point is still made through the arguing of superlatives that Christ is first and firstiest. And we're going to hold that throughout this entire set of verses. Paul is reminding the people in in the Colossian church, uh, using the analogy of a tree or of a plant, that that if they are not rooted in Christ, that you've been living your life in Christ, that you need to be rooted in him. Because if you're not rooted in Christ, if Christ is not the first place that you go, then you will never be strengthened, the way the text describes, and you will never overflow with thankfulness. Where a tree puts its roots makes all of the difference. If the roots are not healthy, if they're not rooted in the right place, the tree cannot grow to a place of strength. And if it cannot grow to a place of strength, it might bear some fruit, but it will never be overflowing with good fruit. Meaning, if we're not rooted in Christ, we will not grow strong in our life and faith. We will not be overflowing with thankfulness or any of the other virtues that the Greco-Roman philosophers of this day and age would argue were important. And what Paul says, Christ is first and firstiest, and so if you want to be overflowing with thankfulness, if you want to have a life that's meaningful and purposeful, 
not necessarily successful in the eyes of the world, but if you want to have a life that has meaning and purpose, that you can overflow not just in classical virtues, but in the fruit of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you want to overflow with those things, you need to be rooted in Christ, who is first and firstiest, central and primary. Because there's all kinds of other options that will present themselves. There will be all kinds of other schemes that will say, well, do this or believe in that. It will make you well. It will make you wealthy or successful or popular. It might just come down to what sounds good. But then we get to verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive meaning instead of being rooted in Christ, firmly established, see to it that no one takes you captive or hostage through hollow and deceptive philosophy, no longer rooted or of substance, but hollow and empty. Hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces or basic principles, depending on your translation, of this world rather than of on Christ. Depending on human tradition, such as circumcision, which Paul talks a lot about in these few verses, and what Paul, who is a a Jew of Jews, is arguing that, that the circumcision that happened, that's a human tradition, and it has its place, but it is not first as a tradition over what Christ has done for us. That Christ's cleansing of us and forgiving us of our sins and building us up is so much bigger and more important and first and firstiest over circumcision, even over this tradition, which Paul would take a lot of flack from his fellow Jews for saying. He's downplaying a primary tradition because he's saying when Christ forgave you and cleansed you, when you were washed in the waters of baptism, when you, when, when you were bought by Christ... That matters more than all of the traditions and rituals that you could ever do. And I think this is especially good news and something new is that circumcision would only be for the males in the household. Now, this whole thing that Jesus is doing is for men and women. This is for everyone. Because to quote Galatians again, in Christ Jesus, there is neither Greek nor Jew, male nor female, slave nor free, but all are one in Christ Jesus. Meaning that What happens to your physical body is one thing, but when Christ is first and primary and firstiest and central, then you are rooted, men and women alike, all equal before God in such a way that we live lives that are full and meaningful and purposeful. And these elemental spiritual forces or basic principles Uh, This is a word that is only used once in the New Testament, which is why almost every translation tries to pick at it a little bit differently uh, because it doesn't get used other than in this text at all in our Bible. This was a good point out by Aaron during worship planning, who I would note is actually off duty for the summer but still comes to worship planning because, you know, you like us and that makes us us feel good. but this, this word stoikeion, these basic principles or elemental spiritual forces, I mean, what is that? It's, it sounds kind of weird. Well, it's not as complicated as it might sound. We know what the, the basics of the world are, the basic elements or the, the 
primary spiritual forces or elements of this world. You know, earth, air, water, fire. These are the basic elements. But in the Greco-Roman world in which, in which Paul and Epaphras live, in which this letter to the Colossian church was written, people didn't just know the elements, they worshipped them. They had gods, or sometimes multiple gods, assigned to the same element. And not just Greek mythology, but all kinds of other uh, different cults and different religious sects throughout the world. Now, why would these people try so hard those who, who worshipped all these things, they would have something to lose if all of a sudden this, this new message comes in and says that it's more important than what they worshipped. We might think that seems simple or easy. We might think it's obvious that you wouldn't just worship an element. But our imagination um, still has the capacity to put ourselves in their shoes. Imagine if you um, had recently experienced some flooding, you know, like the entire Midwest in these last couple months. When it just kept raining and raining and raining, if you did not know Jesus, who or what would you pray to? Well, there'd be some competition for what should be first, right? Maybe you want to pray to the rain god to say, you know what, you're great, you're powerful, you're doing all kinds of stuff, but will you just slow it down, just Turn it off for a second. We need some dry days. You might pray to the rain god to stop. Or you might say, you might be told by someone, oh no, the sun god is even more powerful. So, so come to me and worship the sun god because the sun god's so powerful, he can just push the rain god out of the way and give us some sunny days. And so a city like Colossae would have all kinds of different groups arguing for what is the most important element to be worshiping. What's the most important deity to be following? And it's hollow and deceptive because it doesn't really make a difference which one, whether you're asking the rain god to stop or the sun god to show up a little bit more. Paul is saying all of that is hollow philosophy that's just depending on worshiping the, create, the creation. And instead, if Christ is first and firstest, then we indeed are worshiping the creator not the creation. So these primary elements, these spiritual forces, they might sound good, they might have an appeal, but they're only things. They're important things. The earth matters, the water matters, but they matter underneath Christ, who is the fullness of the deity, as Paul puts it, that all of these other things aren't gods at all, only Jesus Christ is first and firstiest. And therefore, in verse 10, in Christ you have been brought to fullness, not misled, not, not brought astray by all of this other silliness. In Christ you have been brought to fullness, for he is the head over every power and authority. Meaning all of this other stuff, it's all underneath Christ, that Christ is the first and primary. So if you want to have fullness and completion, if you want to be like a tree planted near streams of water that leaf does not wither, but who yields fruit in due season, who overflows with thankfulness, with the fruit of the Spirit, with virtue, then you must root yourself first and foremost in Christ and let all of the other ordering happen after that. 
Jesus is the head over every power and authority. Now, we do know that it was the power of the Sanhedrin, the, the, the group of Jews who betrayed Jesus. It was their power and influence that, that led Jesus to be betrayed. It was the power of Rome and the authority of Rome that, that crucified Christ. Their power and authority can do something to us. It can hurt us. It can kill us. But Jesus, what Paul said is Jesus made a public spectacle of them because Jesus is first and primary over all powers and authorities in verse 10. So picking up in verse 15, having disarmed or disempowered the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. Crucifixion is in itself a public spectacle. It was meant for Rome not only to execute, execute people who were enemies of the state, it was also a way to scare other people into submission. It was a way of saying, we're number one, we're number one. If you're not first, you're last, and we are Rome, and we are first. And so they crucified people in public, in public places to put them on display to shame them, to make a public spectacle of these people, to argue their primacy and centrality. But Jesus made a public spectacle of them because, yes, they did kill him, but he didn't stay dead. Who's number one? If Rome killed Jesus, but Jesus didn't stay dead. That is a public spectacle that, that is disarming and disempowering. We crucified this criminal to try to keep the peace, and he didn't stay dead. We actually killed him. He actually died on the cross, but he didn't stay dead. He disarmed the power and authority even of those who killed him. In fact, proving that they only killed him because he allowed it, following God's will, and doing so to cancel the legal indebtedness that we had to God, making a public spectacle of our sin, of taking away its power over us by dying for us. Jesus made a public spectacle. They, made, made, they may have thought they made a public spectacle of him when he was on the cross, but three days later when he rose again, promising us life and salvation. In that moment, Jesus made a public spectacle of all of the power and authority in the world that not even death had power over him or over those who believe and are rooted in him. Who's number one now? Christ is first and firstiest. And there might be lots of things swirling around the middle saying that they're firstier, but they're not. Jesus is the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. And we hear those words because it's the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. And we see them every week if we look around. They're on the second from the south stained glass window on the west side. That Bible open with a Greek alpha and a Greek omega. The alpha and the omega the first and the last, the first and the firstiest, that we study the word to know the one who is the Alpha and the Omega. 
and almost as if things were rightly ordered with intentionality, with design, the Bible symbol on this window, second from the south, is mirrored from the second from the south on the east with the lamp and the word, meaning thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. My path. In fact, all of these windows are ordered and designed for symbolic symmetry, all of them to remind us that Christ is first and firstiest and primary and central, but symmetrical to remind us in worship of who Jesus is. So easy to overlook our surroundings and yet so beautiful to appreciate them that from first on the south, on the west side, we have the anchor and the cross. And on the east, we have the fortress on a rock, both symbols of strength and immovability, meaning Christ is our anchor that we will hold to in times of storm, that though the waves may crash against us, we will be steadfast. And in the same way, a fortress and a protector, a shield around us to keep us safe, that when we are attacked by our enemies, when people tell lies about us, when we are persecuted, we will stand firm and we will stay in the safety of God's fortress. We move forward to both of the word images being second. And we're going to come to these in a second, but let's start from the north now. This is North Holland, after all. We have the cross surrounded by water, and we have the baptismal font with the dove. Both of these windows symbolically mirroring each other that in the waters of baptism in which we were cleansed and redeemed by Jesus, by God's own power, not by anything we'd done, not by the ritual itself, but by the working of the Holy Spirit as symbolized as a dove. In such a way, on, on the west side, we have a reminder that we participate in baptism. And when we participate in baptism we find the waters of the cross for us, that we participate in Christ's crucifixion and resurrection through our baptism. All of these mirror each other to bring us, not to argue about which is the most important, but to all of them to simultaneously remind us that Christ is first and firstiest, alpha and omega. And the second from the north windows, well, That's to remind us of what we come to today. That we have the grain on the one side and the grapes on the other. And that in our liturgy, you'll you'll hear those words that just as the grains have been gathered from many fields into one loaf and the grapes from many hills into one cup, so it is that we are gathered, that, that we are the fruit of the harvest and that we are sent out as workers for the harvest to come to be fed and nourished by the bread and by the cup in remembrance and communion and hope of the one who is and who was and who is to come, of the Alpha and the Omega, remembering that Jesus was the firstborn of all creation, but that Jesus was born into this world, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, that he descended into hell and on the third day rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven. We remember the plan of salvation as we come to communion. But it's not only an act of remembrance. It's not just a memory exercise. It is remembering ourselves to say we belong. We are members. And every time we come to the bread and the cup, we remember ourselves into this membership. And that's where our communion takes place. 
Not only the fellowship that we have with one another in which we learn to love one another, in which we learn to forgive one another, but also the communion that we have through Christ that is made possible through the cross. That Christ is the true vine in whom we must abide if we are to bear fruit. And that Christ is the good soil in which we must root ourselves in if we are to bear good fruit. So we come in remembrance of who Christ is and what Christ did. We come in communion with, with, with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as we celebrate this together. And we come in hope. We don't have to look far to know that the world is not all as it should be. But we come in hope because the powers and authorities that ail us and plague us and hurt us here have been disempowered by Christ. That Christ made a public spectacle of all of, the, of all of our enemies upon the cross. And that we have hope that what Christ started, Christ will finish on that great and glorious day when Christ shall return and make all things new. And on that day, the deaf will hear, the blind will see, the mute will speak, the lame will walk. For behold, I am making all things new. Friends, come in remembrance, communion, and hope, knowing that Jesus is the first and the firstiest.